This episode contains adult language and topics that may be disturbing for some listeners. Such topics include suicide, drug use, physical or sexual abuse of a child. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. Sup, fool? (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Hi. Sup, fool is typically how you do greet me, so I I wasn't expecting it for the podcast. I know. I never do that on the podcast, but I do it every time you call me. Every single time. I start doing it to you, too, and you're never as impressed with me when I do it. Yep. So last week we talked about Stephen Stainer and his heroic story. This episode is going to be about his older brother, Carrie. As you know from the title, because you've already clicked on it. And maybe Carrie's a sta- uh, hero, too. Yeah. Well, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. But we also wanted to take a quick second to thank Ashley for suggesting these two cases. And also congrats to her and Colton on their engagement. Oh, thank you and congratulations. That's great. We love when listeners give us suggestions and get engaged. Yeah. And also, happy birthday to Shannon in Havasu. Oh, happy birthday, Shannon. So we're going to pick up this story a few years after Stephen's tragic motorcycle accident. In 1997, Carrie Stainer, his older brother, took a job as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Portal, California, which is like right outside the gates of Yosemite. That's not pronounced El Portal. That's El Portal. Oh, we're not getting into this. Uh-uh. I'm just, I'm just curious. No, you're not pigeonholing me into an answer on this episode. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Could be El Portal. Could be El Portal. Don't really know. Google it. (laughs) All right. You keep going. I'll I'll Google it. (laughs) Yeah. So he lived in a room at the lodge up above the restaurant. And this setting seemed to work pretty well for Carrie. He liked the isolated location. He was comfortable in Yosemite. He had spent a lot of time up there growing up and as an adult. And he had had a lot of issues since his brother's passing. His uncle that he had lived with had been murdered the year after Stephen passed away. The next year in 1991, Carrie attempted suicide. And he had some mental health struggles and sought treatment, but nothing really stuck. And then in 1997, he was arrested for drug possession. After this drug arrest, he takes a job at the Cedar Lodge Motel, which was good for Carrie. He had a place to live and a job that allowed him to spend a lot of time alone in nature, which is what he was really into. He liked skinny dipping in the creek and sunbathing and doing weird stuff in the forest. So this was a good job for him. Yeah, I think it's a good job for anyone. That sounds healthy. Yeah. Well, he was known to like smoke a lot of weed and then sunbathe naked. That was like his thing. And skinny dip in the river and all that stuff. So he probably knew all the spots. Yeah. Then on Valentine's Day weekend in 1999, a woman named Carol Sun checked into the Cedar Lodge Motel with her 15-year-old daughter, Julie, and her daughter's friend from Argentina, Silvina Peloso, who was 16. Is it like an exchange trip or like a student exchange program kind of thing? Yeah. From what I've read, her mom... Carol Sund was a foreign exchange student in Argentina when she was young. And then the family that she had lived with had a daughter who then came to California and stayed with them. And this Sylvina 
is that woman's daughter. So she came to spend time, like Carol and the other girl that she did the exchange program with when she was young stayed in touch. Uh-huh. And this is her daughter. Wow. I think that that's a great thing to do. I think that's awesome. Yeah. And so they were on this like really cool road trip because Sylvina was staying with them for a few months and they had gone to a cheer competition for Julie like in Stockton or something and they had visited a bunch of colleges and they were supposed to meet Carol's husband, Julie's dad, Jens, in San Francisco and then they were all supposed to go to Arizona and do like a big tour of the Grand Canyon. That was like the next stop on their trip after Yosemite. Hey, quite the adventure plan. That sounds really fun. Yeah. This was the opposite season at Yosemite and they were some of the only guests at the lodge and when they were checked in they were put in a room in the 500 building which is one of the more like remote sections of the motel. The reason that I've heard that this happened is because in the off season they didn't have full time housekeeping so when people come and stay and check out that room might stay dirty for a week or two they would get enough rooms that had to be cleaned and then they would call in housekeeping and do all of them at once Oh, I see. So those are the rooms that were still clean. Right. That may have been one of the reasons that they were put in such a remote location because the rooms closer to the lodge, like lobby, might have been dirty and hadn't been cleaned yet. Okay. That makes sense. So after a few days of trying to get a hold of them when they didn't meet Jens in San Francisco, he reported them missing. You know, this is before cell phones were real big and they were supposed to meet at the San Francisco airport and he hadn't gotten a hold of her for a few days, but he was like, well, you know, maybe they're having fun or doing this or doing that and they'll meet me at the airport. And when they didn't show up, he was like, okay, this is a big problem. Yeah, absolutely. I know I did a lot of research into this too and and you're exactly right. He just kind of went about things and he thought it was weird, but was just kind of like, eh. You know, he figured out he and he knew both the girls were with Carol, who was really, you know, experienced. She was an adult. She knew what she was doing. And she was supposedly really responsible and super organized. Right. So, yeah, he just figured eh, she's got a handle on it. Yeah. So when he reported them missing, the weather was not great. You know, it was February in the mountains. The first inkling for everybody was that they had some sort of accident on the mountain road. Since it appeared like they left the motel with no signs of distress, everything was in order. So there was a massive search launched right away, and the news coverage was pretty intense. Like, three women went missing in a national park. It was pretty urgent to find them. Totally, yeah. Yeah, like if their car had slipped off the road and they were down a ravine, like if they were still alive, they were in trouble, and they needed to find them right away. Totally. So they pulled out all the stops, helicopters, canines, ground searches, looking for them, or their red Pontiac that they were driving. Then... Carol's wallet was found in Modesto, California, which is over 100 miles west of El Portal. (laughs) Oh, it's El Portal now. Yeah, no, that is a really long distance, and it's also not the right direction. They were coming from the other direction. So it just didn't make sense at all for why her wallet would have been there. They weren't going that way. There there would no reason why they would have been there. Yeah, so that's a bad sign. But there was still no sign of the women, and they searched. I mean, for a long time, her parents hired private investigators. Like, they did everything. But about a month later, on March 19th, a hiker in the Stanislaw Forest came across a burned red Pontiac. Now, this was in a remote area about two hours north of El Portal in the Cedar Lodge Motel. And inside the red Pontiac, they found the charred remains of two women. They're already thinking, like, we know who this is going to be. It's the same car. It's in the right area. 
it's two of three. Like, yeah, they know what's coming. Yeah. So when they identify the bodies, it would turn out to be Carol's son and Silvina Peloso, their friend from Argentina, which is super devastating. But what made it worse is super. the bodies were found in the trunk of the burned out car. So that immediately ruled out any kind of accident. Yeah, they were they were killed. Yeah, this was intentional. And Julie was still missing. So now everybody's on a new panic mode. Was she kidnapped? Was she taken somewhere else? Is she still out there? What's, you know, where's Julie? Right. So they searched again around where the car was found. They didn't find anything. And a few days after the car was found, the FBI received a letter in the mail. And it was a handwritten note that said, we had fun with this one. And inside the note was a map. And the map was of Lake Don Pedro in Tuolumne County, like 40 minutes from where the car had been found, again in the other direction. And it said we had fun. So it's implying or it's saying Mm -hmm. that there's more than just one person. Right. So when the authorities went to the area that was on the map on March 25th, they discovered the remains of 15-year-old Julie's son. She was wrapped in a pink blanket just like the ones at the Cedar Lodge Motel where they had stayed the last night anybody saw them. So this is about six weeks after they went missing. So it appeared that they had found her body and... It had been there the entire time, too. Yeah, because that pink blanket from the Cedar Lodge Motel, that was the last place they had been seen. They know that's where it had to have come from. And the police obviously start interviewing everybody at the Cedar Lodge Motel. And they didn't find any red flags, which was probably a red flag in and of itself. Although, yeah. You know, like, they would have expected something to be up by, like, some kind of red flag. But... When they don't see anything wrong with anybody at the Cedar Lodge, they start rounding up all the violent offenders in the area, like guys on parole for violent offenses against women and men on the registered sex offender list, stuff like that. And they just start rounding them up, like just bringing them in. So they believed that once they did that, they were like, well, we have whoever did this in custody. Like we got together all the bad guys and now we're safe. (laughs) We did it. Yeah. And that was pretty much the like what they implied in the media and everything was like, hey, everything's good. Y'all come back to Yosemite. It's fine. Yeah. I mean, I think they had to say they had somebody Mm -hmm. in custody because it was I mean, this had already been a few weeks past and like it was starting to become the on season for Yosemite and people were getting scared. Yep. Of the area, and obviously this area only survives off of tourism, so. Yeah, so safe to come back for the summer. You know, everything's good. But four months later, on July 22nd, 1999, the body of a woman was found near a creek in Yosemite by forest rangers. She had been decapitated, and her head was found in the water. Oh, God. This isn't what you want to find when you're out out and about in the woods. No. So the body would turn out to be that of Joey Armstrong, who was a 24-year-old naturalist at the Yosemite Institute and lived in a cabin in an area called Foresta, which is like a group of like 30 cabins that are used by park workers that they kind of just all live in all these cabins and then work in the park. And that stream that she was found by was where she would get her water for drinking, watering her garden, showers, all that kind of stuff is that what she was doing i remember she was doing something but i don't remember i don't recall was she out there collecting water for yeah she herself was, or she was watering yeah. her plants yeah okay okay yeah i thought she was doing something along those lines okay yeah so when i read this i was like oh this is so you and christine like her life she had solar showers <laughs> and she was totally living like off the land she grew her own vegetables we're trying totally you guys i was like oh grant would have been friends with this girl for sure we had kale in our dinner the other night that we had picked from our 
garden. So we're on the right track. We're heading in the right direction. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Sometimes I feel so bad for your kids. I'm like, they should just live with me. <laughs> Sometimes they feel bad for them, too. Yeah. It's not that we don't feed them well. We do. They just don't always like to eat healthy. You feed them kale. <laughs> yeah, but it was cooked up in the dinner. It's not like it was just raw kale and expected them to eat off of it. Like, oh, perfect. So you ruined the whole dinner, not just part of it. No, no, no. <laughs> it was great. They loved it, I think. Nobody, nobody complained a ton. Yeah. All right. So as the police and the FBI are trying to figure out who and what was going on, they got a few witness statements that identified kind of a unique car in the area. It was a light blue 1972 International Scout, which is like kind of like an off-roady looking little jeepy thing. It's kind of like a Bronco, isn't it? Yeah. Similar style. Totally. It's like a mix between like a Bronco and a Jeep. Yeah. They quickly realized that Carrie Stainer drove that kind of car. And Carrie Stainer worked at the Cedar Lodge Motel. He was from the area. You know, they knew he spent a lot of time in these woods. And maybe he saw something or someone that day that Joey was murdered. They were like, maybe he saw a weirdo. Because, you know, they want to think that this is like an out-of-towner or a tourist or something. Right. So... They didn't automatically think it was him. They just thought maybe he had seen, like, was in the area. I didn't realize that. Yeah, they thought maybe he saw somebody else or saw oh, something out of the okay. ordinary. All right, that's cool. Yeah, so when they bring Carrie in to ask him what he had seen, he said he wasn't anywhere near that area and denied it all. And they were like, that's weird, though, because his car was spotted there. And then they, like, matched his tire tracks. There was, like, a whole bunch of stuff. And they bring him in the next day and ask him the same questions. And he says the same thing. He's like, I wasn't there. I have no idea. And by July 23rd, so this is, like, three days later, he was gone. He didn't show up for work at the Cedar Lodge, which was not normal for him. And he was gone. So the FBI is like, bingo. Oh, well, <laughs> like, he might have moved up on our list. Yeah. And so they, they immediately they're like, who runs? Like, innocent people yeah. don't run. So the FBI tracks him down at a nudist resort in Wilton, California, which is like three hours away. And they bring him in and immediately start interrogating him. Yeah, this dude went on like a one final hurrah. Like, he loves being naked. Yeah. <laughs> so we know that. So he just took off and I think he knew his time was running up because yeah. he just went to his, probably his favorite spot and got naked. Yep. So the FBI agent who interrogated him has said that Carrie shocked him by kind of like building a rapport with him and not like a friendship, but like an interrogator rapport. And he felt like he had a good feel on Carrie and he could get him to open up to him. And all of a sudden, Carrie said, yeah, I'll tell you everything you want to know if you bring me a large stack of child exploitation material. Like he wanted <sighs> pictures and videos of little girls. And the FBI <sighs> agent was like, what? Yeah, what the... F like, what the fuck? What are you talking about? You know, he just said, let me see all that. I'm sure you guys have it in evidence and whatever. Let me see that kind of stuff, and then I'll tell you what you want to know. So, obviously, oh the FBI is not going to give him what he wants, but they pretend... Like, they're trying to sort that out while they keep talking to him. They ordered a pizza, and they sat down with him, and they were kind of telling him, like, oh, yeah, we had to send that up the ranks to see if they'll let you do that. And eventually, while they're sitting there talking and eating pizza, Carrie just started saying stuff like, this is, you know, this is going to be my last pizza, and this is, gonna, like, my last pizza is a free man, and all that stuff. And eventually, he just confessed that he killed Joey Armstrong. So all it took was some pizza, not some kiddie porn. Well, great. What a stand-up dude. 
Yeah. Changed it all around. Yeah. But he didn't just admit to killing Joey Armstrong. He also admitted that he killed Carol, Julie, and Silvana, which was kind of another shock. I mean, obviously not too shocking because people were already starting to connect these murders. But when they found out it was Carrie Stainer, it was very shocking. Totally. He was really well known. And yeah. again, like we talk about, you expect it to be a someone traveling through a drifter, someone who's not even a part of the community, but to find out that it's somebody who's a pretty main part of your community, like everybody knows him. And Yeah, because their family had been big news. I mean, the country knew this family because of what they went through with Steven. Yeah, that's true. I, I wasn't even thinking that far out. Yeah. I mean, but you're right. They already know him because of his brother making national headlines and it's from the area. And then on top of it, it's a small community. So, of course, they know who he is. But they knew the Stainers as victims of crime, you know, good people who bad things had happened to. And now one of them is the bad person. Like, that's a weird juxtaposition that was, like, very fascinating for the media. Totally. You know, it makes for a great story. That's why we're telling it, because it totally does. On his own, Carrie Stainer's probably not that interesting of a serial killer, honestly. It really is the story that goes with him with his brother that makes this such a compelling case. Steven Stainer on his own is already a compelling case. Right. Carrie's really... It grabs you because of what happened to Steven. Well, it grabs you because you're familiar with him before it happened. Usually we find out about a serial killer because of what they did. Like everybody knew Carrie before what he did. So that makes it like a weird thing. Absolutely. I mean, it's like no other case I know about. Yeah. So Carrie was being held in a Fresno jail. And a reporter named Ted Rollins from San Francisco thought, I'm going to go over there and see if he'll give me an interview. Because, like I said, the media is very familiar with this family. You know, they know Dell and they know Kay and they know Carrie because they've been interviewing him for 20 years. He's like, maybe he doesn't have a lawyer yet and he'll give me an interview. And that's exactly what happened. This reporter walked into the jail the night Carrie Stainer was arrested and asked for an interview and Carrie Stainer met with him and gave him a total full confession to a reporter. I'm surprised that the police let him meet with him. Me too. Like it's the day he got arrested. Like, you know, like they're probably like, we're not done with him. You don't get to know anything yet. Yeah. But I mean, I love these small towns. Anything goes. I know. Well, I guess it worked out, too, for them, because all he's doing is making their case stronger by just telling everybody what he did. Yeah, I guess. uh, Yeah, totally. He's he's not denying it. He's telling him, yeah, I did it. So there's not much. There's not like as much known about Carrie's early life. But what we do know was he was the oldest son of Kay and Del Stainer. He had three sisters. Yep. His brother, Stephen. We mm-hmm. know all that kind of stuff. And then we know that by the age of three, he was diagnosed with trichotillomania. Which, for anyone who doesn't know, is pulling your own hair out of your head. Yeah, it's a compulsive disorder where you pull your own hair. Yeah. So when he was 11, his brother Stephen was abducted. We know that and held for seven years. And there's a few alleged accounts of him exposing himself to female friends and classmates and like his sister's friends when he was a teenager. But that's all we know. Like that I haven't heard any other like where it went any farther than that. But yeah, I mean, that's typically not something people are doing is running around with their wiener out. So no. No. It is odd behavior, for sure. Yeah. So, Carrie is also alleged that he was molested by an uncle at the time that Stephen was missing, that he had stayed with an uncle because, you know, his parents were busy looking for his brother and he says he didn't get any attention and blah, blah, blah. And so, at this time, he says he was molested by one of his uncles. But that's all alleged, too. Like, it's really only his word against 
everybody else's, isn't it? Yeah. Then less than 10 years after Stephen came home, then he passed away, which was another hard thing for Carrie. Totally. Yeah. And then the year after Stephen passed away, the uncle that Carrie was living with, possibly the one that he accused of molesting him, was murdered. It's strange behavior, too, that he would go back and live with the uncle who molested him, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. But Carrie totally denies, though, killing this uncle. Like, he says he didn't do it. And at this point, to this point, he hasn't killed anybody yet. So I think most people believe him. Yeah. Although if he was going to kill for the first time, that would this make sense. would be. Uh, yeah, exactly. It would make sense. Yeah. But what wouldn't make sense is why he wouldn't uh, like admit to it. Yeah. Come forward with it now. Yeah. Unless, of course, it's because, you know, it's killing family, which is a whole other. Yeah. Thing. I don't know. But they do say that Carrie has always struggled with his mental health, like between the trichotillomania and breakdowns that he's had over the years that he calls nervous breakdowns that he would have every once in a while. He admitted to having violent fantasies since the age of seven. So this is before Stephen even goes missing. So Right. I think Carrie is really interesting because like of what happened to Stephen, but then you learn more about him and you realize that these things were happening before Right. The trauma of Stephen happened. So right. he really was kind of on his own, like pretty nuts to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. He's, it's easy to kind of be like, well, what happened to Stephen helped shape him into a serial killer. 100%. But then when you hear stories about this kind of stuff going on since he was six, seven, you know, it's like, well, maybe that didn't have anything to do. Like, obviously, everything that happens to you as a child affects who you become as an adult but maybe it's not as directly connected as everybody thinks it is yeah i see what you're saying but no i think i think steven's disappearance definitely had an effect on him but i also think that he was probably a little weird before before it all went down too so totally he was also a fantastic artist and cartoonist i mean we're not like samuel little status like he was a good (laughs) artist he did cartoons for his like school newspaper and 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 they were really good but he never tried to like capitalize on that like make any kind of career out of it or money out of it, nothing. We see this a lot though. People who have mental health, you know, issues a lot of times are really talented artists probably because it's the best way that they're able to release kind of what's going on in their head when they don't know how to do it vocally or verbally. Yeah. They can do it through their hands so well that makes sense yeah yeah so in the time he was working at the cedar lodge motel before these murders he met a waitress in the restaurant and started dating her carrie was really good looking but always described as like shy and reserved and awkward with women so this is a little out of the norm that he has a girlfriend but at the same time he's a 37 year old like rugged handsome mountain man attracting women was not his problem it was keeping them (laughs) once they keeping them alive well it was just keeping them engaged once they got to know him because he had problems yeah he was weird (laughs) yeah so this girlfriend had small children who i've seen in interviews that are adults now obviously and they say he was great like he was good with them he was good to their mom like no problem but then years later they found out from the fbi that in his confession he confessed that he wanted to kill those kids and their mom Yeah. And that he tried on multiple occasions, like brought kill kits to their house and stuff. And then there was always somebody else there that foiled the plan. Which is exactly what we kind of come to find out is what happened and how we ended up killing Silvana, Carol, and Julie. Yeah. So on the evening of February 15th, 1999, like you said, once again, these plans were somehow foiled. So he went home to the Cedar Lodge and that's when he noticed one red car parked in front of the 500 building of the motel. 
I think this is what makes him so nuts is that he didn't get to kill what he the people he was expecting to, mm-hmm. and he saw this red car and it wasn't like, Oh, this plan's foiled. Move on. It was move on to the next, not the next time you could kill them. Like he didn't care who it was. Yeah. He just wanted somebody to die. Yeah. It was more opportunistic because he started watching them and he realized that it was only one woman and two teenage girls and there was no man with them. And that was always kind of his MO too, was, you know, he was going to make sure that there was no man around because he was a coward and realized a man could probably stop him or at least intervene more and he couldn't overpower them as easily. So fuck him. Yeah. I hate, I hate that. I hate that. Yeah. No, it's, no, it's, you should hate that. (laughs) I do. I, I do. I super hate it. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So the accounts of what happened, you know, we get these from Carrie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because nobody else is around to say what happened. So I just want to preface, like, because we're about to tell the story of what happened to all these women, and this is according to Carrie. We don't know if this is really what happened, but he says that being the handyman of the hotel, late that night he grabbed his tool bag and started knocking on all the doors around their room, like, really loudly and announcing maintenance, and then he would go in and then, like, slam the door of the rooms and stuff. And he said that this was, like, a ruse that he came up with in the spur of the moment to desensitize them for when he knocked on their door. Like, they'd already heard him knock on all the other doors and go in. I totally believe that he came up with it, but I don't think this was spur of the moment. I don't think so either. I think he had planned something like this yeah. to go down. Yeah. So when he knocked, he said there was a leak in the bathroom and that he needed to come in and fix it. And Carol's son was like, not an idiot, you know, and so she didn't open the door. She talked to him through the window next to the door. And she's like, well, hang on, let me check. And she went in the bathroom and she came back out and she's like, nope, no leak. Goodbye. (laughs) And Carrie didn't leave. He was like, I really just need to check. We have to make sure if it's leaking in the walls, you know, we're going to have to move you to a different room because we don't want to ruin the drywall, blah, blah, blah. And he he was just like going on and on. And she was like, I just really, it's 11 o'clock. Like, I don't want to move rooms. And so he says like, okay, well, I'm going to have to go get the manager then, you know, and this somehow appears to let Carol's guard down and she's like, okay, and she lets him in. I think because it was 11 o'clock and she was like, I don't want to deal with this over again. Like, just do it, get in, get out, move on. Like, there's, because she's even closed the door and went to go check. She's like, there's no leak. Yeah. Stop, you know, and he was just, he was persistent. Yep. So he goes into the bathroom and opens up his toolkit, which obviously is a murder kit, not a toolkit, (laughs) that- He had put together some time before this night. I don't know how long before, but he had ropes, a gun, a knife, like all the essentials one would need to be an asshole. And (laughs) when he comes- What do I need to be an asshole? Here's my asshole kit. Yeah. So when he comes out, according to him, he told them, I'm desperate. And then he locked the girls in the bathroom and he strangled Carol's son with a three foot piece of rope. So I always wondered about that. What was he desperate for? Because he come, came across first as a robbery. So was he saying he was desperate for money or desperate for sex? I don't know. He doesn't say. He just says that he was desperate. But like okay. you said, I think they took it as a robbery. And I think that was meant in his ruse to get them to let their guard down. Like, okay, he's just going to rob us and then leave. You know, so maybe he they were more calm and let him yeah. tie them, not let him tie them up. But, you know, there was less of a panic. I don't know. I think they're pretty panicked. Yeah, I think so, too. So he mentions in his confession that it was actually a lot harder to strangle Carol than he had anticipated. And it's like, yeah, well, maybe you should have stopped then. 
idiot. Yeah. But then he took Carol outside to her own rental car and put her in the trunk. Mm. And then when he went back to the room, he took Julie and Sylvina out of the bathroom and sexually assaulted both of them. Then, according to him, at some point he got fed up with Sylvina crying so much that he took her into the bathroom and strangled her in the tub. She's 16 and the other girl's 15, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the ages? Yeah. Okay. Like, this is just a... Yeah, it's gross. Yeah. Yeah, it's gross. But the reason that we have to tell you the details is so that when we get to his sentencing, you could be like, okay, I get it. So he continues after he kills Sylvina to assault Julie over the next few hours. And he forms some sort of like warped bond to her where even when she asked him to go to the bathroom, he took her to the room next door to use the bathroom because he didn't want her to have to see Sylvina's body. So it was like the nice thing he did after the horrible things he's done. Well, that's what he says. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Julie also told him that her name was Sarah. Just an interesting fact. She was trying to protect her real identity in case she made it out of this. Like, she was smart. Yeah. Well, her mom seemed pretty smart, too. Yeah. So eventually, before sunrise, he cleaned up the motel room, made it look like the women checked out and everything. He, like, got towels wet and left them on the bathroom floor like they had showered and gotten ready. And he even, like, wiped all of his fingerprints off of everything, got every piece of his hair off the bed sheets. The FBI would later, during interviews, ask him why he did all that cleanup. And he said, I watched the Discovery Channel. Oh, man. Oh, man. Uh, you know, that, and that is funny because that is something that... People say all the time. Yeah. I've said it. You've said it. Yeah. I know. It's totally. Creepy. It is creepy. Like, yeah. it's funny when It's funny when you're just doing something harmless around the house. Yeah. But when you actually are cleaning up a crime scene, you're like, oh, damn. Yeah. So at this point, he tied Julie to the bed and carried Sylvina's body to the trunk. And then he came back and he put Julie in the car and they left the Cedar Lodge. This is when they head to Lake Don Pedro. And according to Carrie, he carried her like a groom would carry his bride all the way up to this like kind of like lookout pointy thing. And she's still alive at this point, right? Yes. And they're talking and like she's trying from what he says, she's trying to like connect with him so he doesn't kill her. But then he says stuff that she motioned for him to just kill her and get it over with. Like she didn't want to do this anymore, you know? So you don't really know because like I said, we're hearing this from Carrie, but he says he carried her to this beautiful area and they watched the sun come up and he sexually assaulted her again and he says he wanted to keep her but he knew that he couldn't but he didn't want her to suffer like the other two so he moved her hair out of the way told her he loved her and then he slit her throat the fuck is like yeah the fuck? why is wrong with you man like romantic <laughs> <laughs> it's like fuck it's true love story Jesus, like he's so warped in the head. Like this is what he thinks. So anyways, after this, he then gets back in the red Pontiac with Carol and Sylvina's body in the trunk. And he drives to the Stanislaus forest and dumped the rental car just like somewhere in the middle of the forest. And then he caught a cab back for the two hours back to Cedar Lodge. Yeah, a cab. 
Yeah. This is very uh, Brian Laundry almost. Do you know how much a two-hour cab drive has to cost? Yeah, I get it. But don't worry, because he was spending Carol's money, so he didn't have to foot the bill. Yeah, that's what I've heard, too, was that he stole money from Carol's wallet to pay for this cab ride. Because it was like almost $200 or something. Yeah, I I know it was a lot. Yeah. So two days later, Carrie was worried that he had left too much evidence in the car. So he drove the two hours back to where he had dumped the car with the women inside. And he took Carol's wallet out of the car and he torched the car. Yeah. And then this is when he drove the wallet hours away to Modesto to throw off the surge. And then he went back to the lodge. Just out here doing whatever he wants. Like no one's onto him yet. So he can yeah. travel as freely as he wants but you know yep. this is cold and calculated like and what's yeah. crazy about this kind of stuff too is he hadn't planned to kill them so I don't know if he had had this plan before or if he just got the idea like hey I'm just gonna take their wallet out to Modesto drive a few hours and toss it or, or you know what yeah I don't know like you said nobody was really questioning him so he was questioned like by the cops in their disappearance because he worked at the lodge but nobody suspected him of being involved right so That's how he says that his first three murders went down. And then four months later, he came across Joey Armstrong watering her plants at her remote cabin. Like, he just was always in the forest, so he made small talk with her till he figured out that she was home alone. And that's when he pulled a gun and he forced her into her cabin where he sexually assaulted her. And then he put her in his car and she made quite the escape she jumped out headfirst out of a moving car and ran from him that is a like a daring escape and yeah obviously doing every last possible thing she did she could to save her own life but unfortunately he says he caught up to her quickly and she fought back and in the struggle he slit her throat he says in his confession that he started dragging her to the creek and she was still moving so he put his foot on her head and cut her throat again then he drug her down to the creek and he went back and tried to cover his tracks with dirt and pine needles and everything like all the blood and the tracks that led to her body and when he got back down to the creek he decapitated her and left her head in the creek and her body on the side of the creek oh my god yeah which is where she was found by park rangers the next day that's insane it's just it's absolutely insane to to do what he i mean that takes effort (laughs) you know like that's not an easy cut he does not using a, a power saw to get through that like yeah he had to work at that Yeah. And like I said, usually we don't go into such graphic detail as we did in this one, but I almost felt like it was necessary because, I don't know, because you knew Carrie from the, like, as a victim before, I feel like a lot of people give him, like, a lot of, like, oh, you know, he had bad things, you know, and it's like, wait till you hear what this guy did. Yeah. And (laughs) and with her mom too, Jody Armstrong's mom. Yeah. She'd gotten a call from the police that, hey, their potential was there. That yeah. they may have found her daughter. And she was like, does she have bright red hair? At least tell me that. And they like paused and said, ma'am, we can't tell you what color hair she has. And like, she was pissed. Like, why, why can't they just tell me what color hair she was or has until she got to the airport and was waiting for her flight. And she saw it on the newspaper that said missing naturalist in Yosemite found decapitated. Yeah. And she realized right then why the police couldn't tell her what color hair she had because they didn't have her head yet. Yeah, that's it's. 
it's it's unimaginable that somebody would do that to somebody else, you know? And, yeah. And, like, we hear about it all the time, but we don't usually go into graphic detail about it. And I just felt like in this case it was really necessary because I, especially with Joey Armstrong, because I feel like a lot of times when the Carrie Stainer story is told, they focus a lot on the Steven Stainer stuff. And I feel like that's two separate stories. Yeah, I think you're right. Joey kind of gets overlooked a lot because by the time Carrie gets caught for her murder, like, her murder is what solved the other three murders. But it's so cut and dry because he's just like, oh, yeah, I did that one. And he goes to trial for it, but he pleads guilty in a federal court because she was killed in a national park. So he has to go to federal court for that. And so they just give him life without parole and it's done. Like, and I feel like she doesn't get a lot of attention because it's just kind of like, well, that's how he got caught. And it's like, yeah, but do you know what he did to her? Yeah. Out of nowhere. She didn't know him. She didn't meet him. Like, he literally walked by her cabin and saw her. And that was it. Yeah, it was just, it was a crime of opportunity. It, again, wasn't who she was or why she was there. Yeah, so Carrie would go to trial for this one in federal court because she was killed in the National Park, and he pled guilty to every count. Premeditated first-degree murder, felony first-degree murder, kidnapping resulting in death, and attempted aggravated sexual abuse resulting in death. But by pleading guilty, he avoided the death penalty and received life without parole. Hmm. Later in 2002, he would go on trial for the murders of Carol Sund, Julie Sund, and Sylvina Peloso. And in this trial, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Hmm. A little late. Yeah. So the trial went on for three months. Carrie's attorneys argued that he had a break from reality from years of physical and sexual abuse and mental health issues that were ignored by his family, by professionals. They argued that the Stainer family had a long history of mental illness and sexual abuse. Yeah, there was a lot. And I mean, we knew and we covered in, you know, the Stephen Stainer story that Carrie says that he was neglected by his dad and like often told like, you know, why couldn't you been the one that gone missing or, you know, things right. like that, you know, so there may be some validity to some of that stuff. Yeah. He there cl- may not be too, but right. he claimed that he was sexually assaulted as a child and so were multiple of his family members. But those family members have never said that they were. So Well, and the dad was accused of molesting the, the mm-hmm. girls and that never came to well, the girls never said that that was true. Yeah. And Carrie accuses the uncle and the there's just a lot of rumors that there was a lot of abuse in this family. In every generation, on both sides, like it's It seems almost unbelievable, but if it is true, it's like, ooh, this is not good. Oh, yeah. So a doctor at the trial testified that he had OCD, mild autism, and paraphilia. But he was found sane, and the jury convicted him. What's paraphilia? Um, it's... I don't know the exact definition, but it's like any kind of sexual deviancy. Like anything that's like where you have a thing for killing people. (laughs) Oh. Or you have a thing for raping people or, you know, like if you get. I just, I just looked it up. It's a condition characterized by abnormal sexual desires, typically involving extreme or danger, dangerous activities. Right. And just for the record, I never got a clear uh, definition or a clear pronunciation for El Portor or El Portal. So, yeah, I think it's El Portal, though. Eh, El Portal, El Portal. Yeah. Gallego, Gallego. Like, it would, yeah. you know, it's up for interpretation. Yeah. So he was found sane and the jury convicted him. I think he did have a lot of issues, but I think he was sane. I think he knew what he did was wrong. I think so, too. Yeah. It doesn't. I mean, these sound like fantasies that he had had for a long time and he finally was able to make make good on them. Yeah. So 
um, later at his sentencing, he would be sentenced to death for the murder of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. Probably the right the right choice. Yep. So Carol's parents said they felt sorry for the Stainer parents and that they've had a rough go of it, which I thought was really big of them to like have sympathy or empathy for their daughter and granddaughter's murderer's family. I mean, how do you not for the Stainer family yeah. and for the parents? You know, I mean, they've been through literal hell and back with Stephen being abducted, coming back, being killed, mm-hmm. Carrie doing killings. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, I feel sorry for the parents, too. I don't think what their oldest son did was excusable in any circumstance. Right. But, I mean, I think that you can understand that, hey, this probably wasn't your fault. Yeah. Well, and they, like you said, they've had a lot of obvious issues, too, because even when we go through Carrie's early adulthood, like what little we know of it, it's attempted suicides and stays at mental health facilities and, you know, arrests for drug possession and stuff. Like, obviously, they were dealing with some shit. Yeah, for sure. Like, what was your everyday to day life if that was what went on your permanent record? <laughs> yeah. So, That's just what you got caught for. Yeah. So... After the sentencing, you know, when he was sentenced to death, the Stainers shook hands with Carol's son's parents and apologized to them for everything, you know. So, like I said, both of these families really handled this with a lot of grace, like way more than I would have. Yeah. I mean, especially like Carol's parents and stuff like the Stainers, they've kind of been through similar. So, I mean, not that they should, but they kind of know how to act. Yeah. These people like they're, you know, they're showing complete grace for these parents but it's understandable why they did yep so as of the time of this recording carrie stainer is still at san quentin on death row and like we've talked about before there's a moratorium on the death penalty in california so he's not going to be executed anytime soon but right he is still currently on death row which is kind of uncommon because they've been dismantling death row now for a few months so you know moving them to other prisons and we talked about that in the daniel wozniak one Yeah, I don't think he has, I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon, though. I don't think they're moving him from where he is. Yeah. If somebody's going to get the death penalty, it probably should be Carrie Stainer or should be at the top of that list. Yeah. Well, this is a crazy story. I'm glad that we were told this one again. I'm glad Ashley brought this one to the light for us because this is crazy. Like, yeah, honestly, actually, I said in the beginning that Carrie Stainer on his own probably isn't his own story, but I think Carrie Stainer absolutely is his own story. This is a crazy thing to have happen to somebody. And it just it makes it that much bigger that Steve that he's Steven's brother. So, yeah, I just feel kind of bad about that. Like, I feel like Steven's story is so like inspiring and heroic and all that stuff. And I feel like not that Carrie Stainer taints him, but I, like I wish there was a way to just they weren't connected. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's like Carrie Stainer is so the opposite. It's like Stephen was a hero and he was a good kid. And this all this bad stuff happened to him. And then he still turned his life around and got married and had two kids and was a great dad. And then he died young, tragically. And then his fucking brother's got to go be a serial killer. Like, yeah, I guess there's one in all of our families. But (laughs) I mean, not serial killers, but, (laughs) you know. I do know what you mean. There is but the fucking one. One. <laughs> there's one of those people in all of our families. For yeah. Sure. He just goes and mucks everything up. It's like, hey, we're all doing really good right now. Can you just stop being a douche? <laughs> yeah. If you could get yourself figured out and, or at least just stay out of the way. Yeah. That would be super Or helpful. change Thank your you. last name. Like. <laughs> that's... that's probably why you got married, huh? It was just to get out of that whole. 
Yeah, cycle. I'm like, I don't need to be involved in any of this. <laughs> Changed my name a couple oh. times. I got like multiple paper trails away from that. <laughs> totally different emails. You're good to go. Yeah, same exact email. <laughs> <laughs> Just different. <laughs> oh, so all right. Well, well, that's the story of uh, Carrie Stanner. I'm glad that I'm we like, did I, that. That I was... never know how to end. <laughs> end up. Yeah, ending these is is really hard. So if you have any tips on how we should end it, go to our Instagram at From Crime to Crime, or even send us an email at From Crime to Crime Podcast at Gmail dot com. Hey, we posted a video on TikTok, by the way. So go watch that. Yeah. We're still figuring out TikTok, so don't judge us yet. <laughs> We're still hiring an unpaid intern if anybody wants to uh, be our unpaid TikTok social media intern. Yep. All right, buddy. Well, I will see you next week for another shitty story about how people can be terrible to each other. Can't wait to tune in then. <laughs> All right. Love you. Love you too. Bye.